he has a PhD in human genetics, uh, and he has interest in medical ethics. And if you ever want to sit down with him at lunch, he has some amazing, incredible, and moving stories he could tell you about those experiences. I recommend it. His current scholarly work is in the area of intersexuality. Um, he and I co-authored a paper on, called The Nature of Gender, Gender Identity in Persons Who Are Intersexed or Transgendered uh, that was published in the Journal of Psychology and Theology in 2005. He's a long-term ASA member. Uh, he recently completed a term of service on the ASA Executive Council. And the title of his presentation is Neither Male Nor Female, God Created Them, Issues in Intersexuality. Thank you, Heather, and thank all of you for uh, being here for this morning's session and again for this afternoon's session. As we shift gears a little bit to now look at what the sciences tell us about gender and sexuality. I just want to have one caveat. I'm going to be showing three pictures here this afternoon which uh, might offend some people's sensibilities. Uh, they feature nakedness. Uh, two of them are just of genitals of intersexed uh, infants. Uh, one of them, though, is of an adult person, and that particular picture is in the public domain. I'm not sure I'll remember to tell you uh, that it's coming up. I hope that if you are offended by it, you will just close your eyes and let me move on. Um, but I think it makes some very important points that I want to leave you with if you're open to that consideration. Our births are greeted by three basic questions. What is the baby's sex? What is the baby's name? Is the baby healthy? And sex and name often comes before the question of, is the child healthy? And yet all of those questions are so very fundamental to our identity and our human nature. It's hard to think of ourselves as something other than what our gender and name and health status is. But for some newborns, sexual identification is ambiguous. It is not clearly male or clearly female. Now we have come to learn, particularly over the last 50 years, that there are many different critical factors in terms of biological sex, whether we are female, male, or somewhere in between, which we could call intersexed. For the longest time, Midwives, parents, physicians simply identified the sex of a newborn when it emerged in birth based upon its external genitalia. But there are internal genital structures. And then when we discovered chromosomes, we came to realize that two X's are associated with females and X and a Y is associated with males. And so we have genital sex, but we also have chromosomal sex. And we could think of physiological sex. What are the hormones, the dominant hormones that are coursing through our body? Strict biologists would say the way you sex a mammal or sex a vertebrate is based upon which one contributes the largest gamete in procreation. But it then requires procreation. And I don't think we've tended to use this with humans because it might in some way suggest that individuals who are infertile are somehow less sexed than individuals who are fertile. There is psychological sex, also sometimes dubbed brain sex. What is our orientation? 
Are we attracted to people of the same sex, opposite sex, both sexes? Are we one of those few people who, at an early stage in our life, came to believe that we are trapped in the wrong body? All our sensations are that we should be female, and yet our body is male, such as a transgendered individual. And if one then undergoes medical procedures to make the brain sex agree with the body sex, we say such individuals are transsexual. And then practice is our moral choices in terms of how we act upon our sexual drives. Gender is much more of a social construction, something that we tend to associate with one sex versus the other sex. So femaleness and femininity, or maleness or masculinity, and maybe we need a third pair of terms that would be intersexness or intersexinity to parallel that. Now, we tend to think of sex as being exclusively male or female and relatively simple. And if we've learned some biology, it's that, well, it's that critical chromosome. At the time of fertilization, do you have two X chromosomes or an X and a Y? Or the sex chromosome delivered by the sperm is the one that determines the sex of the individual. In reality, there are seven very significant tripping points, and they aren't really points, they are processes. And so along the x-axis here, I've tried to delineate time, though it is not a linear axis. You find that I'm glossing over. So we've got fertilization here, and then we go from the 6th to the 12th week to the 16th week, and then the rest of gestation up to birth. But the very first important step is the fertilization process and whether an X or a Y sperm fertilizes that egg. And on each of the seven steps I'm going to portray here, if the switch is flipped in the up position, it tends to lead to a female and femaleness. If the switch is in the down position, it tends to lead to a male and maleness. But any one of those switches can be flipped in the wrong direction and it will have an effect upon subsequent switches. And so the next switch is the development of the gonads, the ovaries in females, the testes in males. Usually they agree. In the overwhelming majority, if not all of us, they did agree. But not always do they agree. Thereafter comes hormonal sex. So mainly estrogen and progesterone in the case of female infants, infants and fetuses mainly androgens in the case of male fetuses. And then the next two steps tend to occur concurrently, and I can't show that without a three-dimensional uh, way of portraying it, but the development of the internal genitals and then the development of the external genitals. And those occur almost concurrently from the 12th to the 16th week. Thereafter follows birth and childhood into adolescence, uh, puberty results in hormonal sex, secondary sex characteristics developing. And starting way back, probably along these lines, and extending all the way out to here, is the development of what's going on in the brain, which we refer to as brain sex, and that sense that I am predominantly male or I am predominantly female, and what my attractions will wind up being. So seven significant tripping points for most of us all the switches are up or all the switches are down. But those that are intersexed have some switches that got thrown in the wrong direction and they had profound implications.
From time immemorial, we have tended to think that the sex and gender characteristics are dimorphic. And so females would graph out like this, males would graph out like this is a bell curve. And then what we came to discover is that it isn't as dimorphic. Even something such as the phallus length, that is the size of the clitoris in females or the penis in males, that there is overlap. And very quickly, the health professions developed terminology where if it was a male with a particularly small penis, we described it as micropenis. And we could have a heyday going around this room asking males what they would think if they were identified as having micropenis. The counterpoint is in females where they have what is referred to as an oversized clitoris, clitoromegaly. And we could have a heyday going around the room and asking female what would they think of themselves or a daughter of theirs that was identified as having such a condition. By putting medical terms upon it, we have medicalized it, and we have then led parents to think of, oh, this is something heinous, this is something serious, there is shame associated with this, something needs to be done. And so the tradition for the last 50 years has been to rush in medically and try to correct those situations. Here is a picture of a newborn infant. Could you tell me where that is a male or a female? We describe such an individual as having ambiguous genitalia. And typically we use as the root term what the gonadal tissue is. And so we would say it's a female fetus if there's evidence of the gonads of ovaries, even if they have male-like external genitals. A male pseudohermaphrodite would, have, would be a male fetus with undescended testes, but female-like external genitals. And true hermaphrodites actually have portions of both gonads and testes. And the new terminology that's sort of uh, emerging is that we refer to these as disorders of sexual development, or DSDs. And I'm one that's somewhat uncomfortable with that terminology because, again, I think by the moment you throw this label disorder upon that, you're invoking medicalization and other sorts of interventions that I'm not convinced are warranted. Here's a case of an individual who's a true hermaphrodite, and this is the gonadal tissue. You don't have to be much of a histologist to recognize that these things are the follicles of eggs, and these structures here are the seminiferous tubules that produce sperm in males. And so here, in a single gonad, you have ovarian tissue and testicular tissue. There are enormous psychosocial issues associated with this. Our societies and cultures are set up in a dichotomous way that a person is either male or female. And yet, as I've said, sex and gender are fundamental to our identities. And so when someone is not clearly male or female, it challenges our identities. Intersex persons struggle with their identities, and most of them will struggle for a lifetime some of them find a measure of peace and acceptance as they get into their late 20s or 30s, but sometimes it's delayed well beyond that. It tends to be associated with low self-esteem, significant psychological problems, increased incidence of suicidal ideation and attempts, particularly in adolescence. And families, friends, and society struggle with the identity and roles of intersex persons. Parents in particular grapple with the sense of shame. There are legal issues with intersexuality. Birth certificates say you're male or female, and they must be completed within days of birth. 
marriage certificates, military service, liability under sex crime statutes. Incredible array there. And while our faith traditions aren't legal bodies, uh, certainly we have described ordination and service and opportunities in faith traditions based upon whether people are male or female. And so the discrimination occurs in the church as well. I was going to leave this out, except that I realized that later this week, or I guess a week from last night, the Olympics begin. In 1936, at the Berlin Olympics, an individual who placed in the high jump was 20 years later identified as being male, whereas she had meddled in the women's division. Uh, He confessed that he was an imposter and that the German regime had put him up to this. It was in the late 50s, early 60s that we learned about a variety of different sex tests, but the initial outcome was every female athlete was going to be subjected to a sex or gender verification test. And initially it was just they had to stand nude before somebody who could say, yep, you're female. By 1968, it was possible to do buccal smears and do the chromosome test, so they started looking for chromosomes. The hormonal tests, which would detect elevated levels of testosterone, were not yet available, and still they aren't that highly refined or are frightfully expensive. And then specific gene tests have been added uh, in the uh, last 10 to 15 years. I've got some data there on the 92 Summer Olympics. The key thing was, while they screened enormous numbers of individuals and identified some positive for what we refer to as intersex conditions, it was judged that all of them would be allowed to compete as females. And in the 96 Summer Olympics Games in in Atlanta, Georgia, this many female athletes were screened. You can see the number that were identified with intersex conditions. Again, all of them were allowed to compete. It was judged. It gave them no unfair advantage. And so in 2000, it was decided that there would be no longer any mandatory testing, but there still is testing set up if allegations are received. And now the testing would be done by an endocrinologist, gynecologist, geneticist, and psychologist. And just two years ago, an Indian middle-distance runner was disqualified from the Asian Grahams and stripped of a medal uh, because she had failed her sex test. Uh, She attempted suicide nine months later. It has never been disclosed what the nature of the sex test was. But clearly, she had no idea uh, that anything was amiss. And by and large, people are saying that ought not to have happened. There is intersex in animals. Some fish naturally change their sex. The uh, blue rassy and the clownfish, for example, uh, do so just based upon environmental factors. The clownfish is a monogamous pair, females larger than the male. If you remove the female, the male will transition into a female and then pick up a male partner and resume a monogamous relationship. Occurs naturally. There are insects, mammals that are known to occur, kangaroo rats, deer, elk, caribou, moose, and bears. just depends how you define intersex. Sometimes it occurs at fairly high frequencies. But what this evidence is used to suggest is that somehow intersexed is natural in the animal kingdom. We maybe ought to perceive it as natural in humans too, and that it warrants acceptance, attention, and accommodation to some degree proportionate to its prevalence. There also is an increased frequency of intersexed conditions in 
animals. We're noting it particularly in fish in polluted waterways. But we're also seeing it in other areas, and so many of our industrial processes and chemicals that we use have come to be recognized as endocrine disruptors or hormone disruptors. We put hormones into our meat supply. And there are water sources that have a fair amount of sewage in them, and whether that sewage comes from animals treated with hormones or from humans' use of hormones, which then are flushed down the sewer system, it has its impact upon fish. Uh, there are, oops, I'm getting ahead of myself. Oops, I did. There are fish in uh, the Potomac River, in the Shenandoah River, and from Los Angeles down to San Diego in the Pacific Ocean, where there are male fish that are carrying eggs. And it's at greatly increased frequency associated with these things that are in the environment. I believe Canada has decided to ban plastic water or baby bottles. And I think in the United States, Walmart has voluntarily withdrawn plastic baby bottles because of the presence of bisphenol A in the plastics and recognition that this may have an effect upon sexual development. In humans, there are predominantly five different causes of human intersexuality, congenital adrenal hyperplasia, androgen insensitivity syndrome, gonadal dysgenesis, hypospadias, and cytogenetic conditions. And time doesn't permit me to develop each of these. They're fascinating and have their own kinds of wrinkles. I'm going to take the more dramatic of those, the one that's androgen insensitivity syndrome, and just in two slides try to describe that a little bit to you. But before I do that, one might ask, with what frequency do these things occur? And so scientists have attempted to look at the different conditions, generate what the frequency is believed to be out of 100 live births. And this particular group was very liberal in their definition of what constituted each of these conditions. And so this is the high values. This group took a very conservative approach trying to say, look, it isn't nearly the problem you make it out to be. We don't need to divert the sort of uh, interests and concerns that other groups are making it out to be. And so they came up with a low estimate. But basically, the high estimate would you suggest about 1.728%, which means in the U.S. population, there would be about 5.1 million people who might have an intersex condition. The low end would suggest that it's about 60,000. And my own sense in working on this the last five or six years is that the figure is somewhere around 0.02 to 2% uh, would fit what I think is a legitimate definition of what constitutes an intersex uh, condition. But what that means is that our medium to large sized churches have individuals in them who are dealing with issues of intersex. Development takes place in such a way that initially we begin to develop exactly the same. And then the basic tissues or structures are there to be male or female. In the absence of androgen being produced by the testes, one develops into the external genitals of a newborn female. In the presence of androgen, the same structures now develop into the structures associated with the external genitals of a male. Here you see two pictures of female fetuses at the same stage of development. And I'll bet you if I didn't label them, there's no, very few people in this room who could tell the difference between these two. This one is a male fetus, and the urethra is being encased within the penis, and the opening will be here. 
This is the female, and as this recedes, the urethral opening will be left here, and then this structure will recede to become the clitoris. One of the things that deeply concerns me when a woman is pregnant and I hear they had an ultrasound done and they're just elated because they learned the sex of their child is if you do that ultrasound a little bit too soon and you get it at this stage, you will misidentify the sex of the child. And it has deeply saddened me when parents have a healthy newborn but they're profoundly disappointed because they thought it was going to be a boy. They painted the room blue. They picked out a boy's name and they wound up with a girl and how she disappointed them. No one should ever be born into the world disappointing their parents because of their gender. The internal organs also develop out of very similar sorts of structures. And so we're all born and initially develop with these structures. In the absence of Mullerian inhibiting substance, the yellow structures develop into the ovary, the oviducts, the uterus, and the upper part of the vagina. And in the presence of both androgen and Mullerian inhibiting substance, then these structures develop into the testes and into the other structures associated with the internal male genitals. Now in androgen insensitivity syndrome, there are individuals who have the complete syndrome partial or a mild form of the syndrome. They have an X and a Y chromosome, so based upon chromosomal sex, they would be male. But they usually, particularly with complete androgen insensitive syndrome, they have female genitals, but in partial or mild conditions, it may range from ambiguous to male genital. They may have an undescended testes. These are prone to become cancerous, though not until after age 18. And that's an important factor because that means we could allow them to mature to the point where they decide whether they have that gonadal tissue removed or retain that tissue. What's going on is that they have either no androgen receptors on the surface of their cells or the androgen receptors they have are defective. This particular gene is on the X chromosome. It's a sex-linked condition. We've mapped it. We now know 60 different mutations that lead to different, these different forms of androgen insensitivity syndrome. Now, I think this next one's the one where if uh, nudity offends you, you might close your eyes for a moment. This is an individual with complete androgen insensitivity syndrome. I think by all accounts, we would say such an individual is a woman. It is quite possible that she will not know she has this condition, uh, even at puberty, where she will never have menses because she lacks the upper portion of the vagina and the uterus. And I know that if one of my daughters came to me when she was in adolescence and said, uh, I haven't gotten my period yet, uh, I'd turn to my wife and would probably say, aren't you lucky? Uh, many women would like not to have to deal with menses that often. And so it's very important that in this particular scenario, what we discover is that uh, this individual is a woman. Now, she has an inability to respond to androgens. She actually has less muscular strength. And so these are the individuals that have been weeded out in the Olympic sex test. And the effect is that these individuals have been shamed, discriminated against, even though they have less muscular strength. Some of them have been reinstated but not necessarily all of them, and it's why, in part, we've withdrawn from 
testing, mandatory testing of women. Okay, I'm going to gloss over these because I really got bogged down on some things, so stick with me. And let me just end with some Christian perspectives on human sexuality. We have different sources of knowledge. We use scripture and tradition. Those are first and foremost. We have theology that's developed over the centuries, but we also have to listen to people's experiences. And then at some point, we have to weigh experiences over what maybe some of our traditional teachings have been. The emphasis over the last 30 years has been perhaps on gender issues. There's also been a focus on homosexuality. Unfortunately, in grappling with those issues, little foundational or normative work is done on human sex and sexuality. So in creation, how do we understand a sovereign God that maybe we say is male, and yet most of us don't think of as someone walking around with a penis? Was there human sexual activity before the fall? What was and is God's intent for human sex and sexuality? Is it appropriate to understand our sex and sexuality as a gift, and then is it a gift that some people are not permitted to use? Can we understand human sex and sexuality as something that's embodied? In the fall, we have knowledge of good and evil. Now the shame of nakedness emerges. There's sexual activity and there's procreation. How do we understand our sex and sexuality as broken, distorted as a consequence of sin? What are the implications if we consider some forms of human sexuality as normal and natural and other human sexuality and intersexuality as genetic conditions, disabilities, illnesses, or diseases? Our task on earth is that of restoration, working towards the redemption of God's creation and humans. Think of what scripture tells us about a future of sexual beings without marriage and procreation. We're to be imitators of Christ. How was sex and sexuality integral to the person of Jesus Christ? And is that what our sex and sexuality ought to be like? Our task is to restore God's good creation. What are the possibilities and limitations of that? And I was going to trace uh, what the Reformation and so on has done, but uh, time doesn't permit that. Let me end with just... One scripture quote. This is Jesus talking about marriage and intersexuality. He's really focusing on aspects of marriage and perhaps divorce. But here are these two verses. Not everyone can accept this teaching, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let one anyone accept this who can. And I think our challenge is acceptance of such individuals as they grapple with this difficult dimension of their lives. Thank you.